Hi there. This is the Ask Mr. DNS podcast, episode number 11. I'm Matt Larson, and with me is my co-host, Cricket Lou. Nice to be back. <laughs> so episode 11, you know, we that means that we've done 10 episodes, and we didn't really make a big deal about our 10th episode. No, I, I recall remembering that it was the 10th and, and feeling fairly good about that. <laughs> All right. Should we go right to the mailbag? I, I think we should. Um, you know, it's our it's our hope. Should we explain that it's our hope that we'll actually get through more than two this time? Yes, we think we can. We're not going to say what our goal is, lest we not reach it, but just a single-digit integer greater than two. <laughs> yes, we can. All right. Shall I read Paul's uh, yeah, go email right message? Okay. Well, this is from Paul Roberts, uh, whom I know and, and works for uh, Tuscany Networks, a partner of Infobloxes uh, in the UK. And Paul says, uh, hi, guys, here's a question for you. If configuring bind with a global forwarder in the options block, maybe in order uh, to resolve internet names, and your authoritative zones contain delegation to other name servers, why does bind insist on forwarding queries for those delegated zones out to the forwarder rather than follow the delegation. Uh, should to, I stop at this point and, and should we just explain that? Yeah. So people I think, don't have to parse the whole question. I think that, so, that's worth doing. So let's say that you've got uh, foo.com is your company uh, domain name and you've got foo.com and then you've got sales.foo.com and uh, research.foo.com and, and a bunch of subdomains that are all delegated subzones. And on some authoritative server where you're hosting foo.com, uh, and foo.com, so it has foo.com, but not the subzones, but it delegates to the subzones. So they're on other name servers. That's right. So they're NS records in the foo.com zone. Exactly, right. And so then you are forwarding on this authoritative name server for foo.com to some other server. And the issue is that uh, if you give it a query for, let's say, www.foo.com, something in foo.com, uh, it answers. No, no problem. But if you send a query for www.sales.foo.com, rather than following the delegation, it forwards. Right, right. Assuming that it's a bind name server uh, in its sort of default configuration, it's going to forward, which takes a lot of people by, by surprise. I, certainly way, way back when I saw this for the first time, took me by surprise. Absolutely. I, I have the same recollection as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so Paul continues, to get around this, you have to add a null forwarder statement to the authoritative zone's stanza in namedy.conf to turn off forwarding for that zone so that it follows the delegation. But you don't have to do all this with Microsoft's DNS server. They just follow the delegation. And he says, it has always seemed to me that this is a bit of... A quick, hmm, a quirk, I think, I think he, he means, means quirk. yes, in bind, that trips people up. And I don't understand why it prefers to forward the query rather than follow de the delegation. Just seems weird. Is this by design? And do you know why they chose to do it this way? So do we know? Uh, I don't think I do. <laughs> I, I honestly don't think I, I know either. Um, I, I, would, I would suggest, though, that this is an area where the... Uh, prescribed behavior in this particular situation, if you read the RFCs, is not well-defined, wouldn't you say? Well, yes. I, I feel a rant coming on because there's so much that's uh, either ill-defined or not defined at all. Uh, is, is forwarding, is the concept of forwarding even covered in uh, 
the RFC's 1034, 1035? I'm almost certain that it is. Yeah, I'm almost sure that in 1034, there's actually a section on forwarding. Well, it is It is unexpected. I'll give you that. And do you remember, I, I'm sitting here trying to remember the version of bind where they added this null forwarding behavior. Oh, gosh. I think it was like 8.2. And I'm not exactly sure of that, but... but I was going to guess 8.2 or 8.3. 8.2 yeah. sounds sounds more like it. Yeah, 8.3, I remember, not, not a lot of new stuff in 8.3 from what I recall, but 8.2 was, was Yeah, big. so this is when you and I were, uh, this is when you and I were consulting and uh, doing DNS architectures for people, and this was a big deal because this made things a lot easier with uh, with firewalls. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing a fair amount of consulting work with, with this. You remember we, we did the, the design of a big, um, uh, a big multinational corporation's uh, namespace and and uh, the DNS architecture to support it. And um, this figured rather prominently in that, if I remember correctly. So I guess uh, I don't think we have an answer. Well, yeah, we don't know why. Or maybe yeah, that is the answer. Yeah, the answer is the answer is we don't know. But we, you know, it certainly is an area, as far as we know, that is uh, not codified in the DNS specifications. So All right, I think. I think we're on track for okay. more than two questions. All right. Do you want to go uh, go off and uh, read the next one then? Sure. All right. This is from Yang Takming, and uh, he says, "I've uh, he has a query on his bind server. It's uh, bind 9.6. He says I've set up the DNS to act as an internal uh, to, or excuse me, I've set up DNS for the internal server to resolve internal domains. Uh, for example, xyz.com." and to use forwarders to point to an external server. If a client cannot find the result for the A record in the internal name server, like test.xyz.com, uh, is, is it possible to configure namedb.conf to allow it to query the forwarders for the same domain name? In other words, test.xyz.com. So I think the question here is, uh, basically you're, what he wants to know is if a particular name is not found in the xyz.com zone, uh, rather than returning NX domain, can you force the server to actually send it to the forwarders to try and resolve it somewhere else? Right. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. Um, and I think the short answer there is no. <laughs> if the, the name server, the internal name server that you've set up is authoritative for xyz.com, then if it receives a query for a domain name that turns out to be in xyz.com, it'll simply answer it and uh, will never turn to a forwarder or send an iterative query um, in order to in order to answer that, right? Yep. Yeah, there's there's no way around this that I know. Yeah, that's just that's just part of the definition of authority. At least with all standard name servers, I suppose there might be other name servers that uh, that monkey around with this, but that's that's the standard DNS behavior. Yeah, it would get complicated, though, because how could you ever issue an NX domain? How would you know definitively that something doesn't exist? Well, you really couldn't. Right, right. Unless <laughs> your local name server and a remote name server for XYZ.com told you that it didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I guess that so. wouldn't work out very well. So we have, we have kind of a forwarding theme going on here, don't we? I guess we do. All right. All right. It's it's the lightning episode. It is. It is. Yeah, maybe we could just keep going and see how many we can fit in here. All right. So I'll All read right. uh, I'll read Samar's question. 
Um, he says, uh, perhaps this might be a totally small and lame question for your podcast. Nope, there are, there are no questions too small or too lame for us. Uh, but I still want to ask, what do I need to do so that foobar resolution works in the same way as foobar.domain.com resolution on all clients? Basically, my fully qualified domain name resolution works, but short host name resolution doesn't. So he just wants to be able to look up foobar in, instead of having to specify the fully qualified domain name, foobar.domain.com. And he says he's running bind 9.4.2. On uh, Linux, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, on OpenSUSE. So can you help him? So the, the ant- yes, the answer is go to your uh, Etsy resolve.conf file and add a search directive. That's right. And configure something Done. called the search list, right? That's right. And the search list. Well, I think this is our fir- this is our first opportunity in this podcast to maybe go off on a, a bit of a tangent or, or you know an ex- explanatory tangent. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Well, I mean, should we talk about what the search list is first? Well, that that's what I meant. Okay. All right. Well, the the search list is a list of domain names that are appended to things that you might type, for example, at the command line or in your browser's uh, URL field or what have you, that are uh, incomplete. And so this list of domain names uh, can get appended to the thing that you've typed, like foobar, for example, to try to turn foobar into a, a real fully qualified domain name, whatever it is that you uh, intended. So what uh, Samar wants to do, I, I think, is to make sure that at least domain.com ends up in his search list, which, as you explained, you can do with the, uh, the search directive in the resolve.com file. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that this is definitely something that happens at the stub resolver, that is, at the, at the lowest DNS client level. From a name server's perspective, a name server only deals in fully qualified domain names. If you're going to ask a name server a question, uh, that domain name in that question is going to be, has to be, a fully qualified domain name. I mean, if you sent uh, a name server a query for foobar, it, it thinks you're talking about dot foobar, the, the top level domain dot foobar. You know, it just has no concept of anything but a fully qualified domain name. That's right. So this idea of a search list is really a human factors thing to make it easier for people uh, that's done on stub resolvers so that you don't have to type fully qualified domain names over and over and over again. You can use these short names. Right. And it, and it makes perfect sense, right, to have, for example, um, the domain name of the zone that you're in configured in your search list, right? If you're, if if you and all of your neighbors at work, uh, all of their machines are in the domain.com zone, then probably a lot of the things that you're going to access on a day-to-day basis are are in that domain.com zone, and and you might benefit from being able to refer to those things by just the first label of their domain names, rather than having to type foobar.domain.com over and over and over again. And we should point out that, um, let's see, so on, well, it, generically, this is called the search list. Uh, and we've talked about how to configure it on really any Unix or Linux system is the uh, Etsy resolve.com file. Well, that's if you're actually sort of configuring it at the lowest level. There may be uh, other things on top of that that, you know, like some sort of graphical configuration aid or something. Um, on Windows, uh, it's, oh, good heavens, I'm not going to be able to remember. The DNS exactly suffix where it is. search order. No DNS. No DNS suffix. Domain search. suffix search list. Yeah, domain suffix search list. Boy, that's a mouthful. Yeah, isn't I, it? I, 
Yeah, I don't remember where. I mean, it's under the DNS properties tab on a particular interface, I guess, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And and it's probably also worth noting that in most uh, in most um, Windows environments, you probably already have some sort of a search list, and it's it's useful to understand what's in it. Um, for example, in an Active Directory environment, generally speaking, the first thing in the in the search list is the name of the Active Directory domain, which is assumed to have some sort of uh, uh, validity, <laughs> some relationship to DNS, although in fact it may not. And then various uh, ancestors of that, and the ancestors of that um, domain name are created by just peeling off the leading labels. So in other words, if your if your Active Directory domain name is you know, a.b.c, then you'll probably end up with a.b.c and b.c in your search list at the very least. Well, and speaking of the search list having stuff in it that you may not realize, uh, we should also point out that the way the search list gets set for, I would say, the vast majority of clients is via the DHCP server. Right. And in that case, actually, what's, what's being set really is uh, the local domain name, right, via DHCP option. Um, Isn't there an option for the actual search list? There is actually an option for setting the search list, but almost no DHCP clients understand it. So you can set it all you want, um, but there are almost no DHCP clients that will do anything with it. Well, I am not ashamed to admit that I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's too bad, too, because, um, you know, in many, many cases, it would really help the administrator to be able to set multiple entries in the search list, and you can really only today set uh, the local domain name. So, you know, basically a one-element search list. And sometimes the resolver will derive a, a whole list of domain names from that by taking uh, the local domain name and then adding on the, the, parent, uh, the parent of that, maybe the grandparent, you know, up, up to, you know, six or, or however many, as long as they all have two, they have two or more labels. But uh, yeah, the DHCP option is just not widely supported. In fact, I don't know of any stacks that support it. Well, there you go. So that's more like it. That's more like one of our typical answers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're Long back and track. rambling. Yep. Yep. So shall, shall we go on? I think, I think the next one is yours, isn't it? Yes. All right. So this is from Dirk Copeland, and he has a two-part question. All right. And he asks, part one here is, if there is an attempt to attack a bind server using the Kaminsky vulnerability, you know, I want a vulnerability named after me. Well, you're going to have to do more anyway. work finding vulnerabilities then, aren't you? I guess so. Instead of taping podcasts. That's right. Uh, will the packets used to spoof the server, so that is the packets sent from the attacker during the round trip of the legitimate packet, will they be tallied up in the stats of the victim name server as described in Cricket's Recipe 5.13 in his book, DNS and Bind Cookbook, First Edition? How's that for a plug? Yeah, awesome. There uh, is only or, one edition. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> or are they just packets that the name server will just ignore until one comes along that matches the source port and tracks transaction ID? Right, right. So should we, should we address that one first before going on to the second part? Yeah, I think so. So um, the answer to that, I believe, is that the name server. Well, let's 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 actually step back just a moment. When when someone, a hacker, is trying to uh, exploit the Kaminsky vulnerability, he's going to try 
um, sending in spoofed response packets from the IP addresses of authoritative name servers that you've sent queries to. And he's going to try to guess the query port that you're using, and he's also going to try to guess the transaction ID that you're using, or the message ID that you're using. Um, so generally speaking, most of the time, he's going, to get, he's going to get one of two things wrong, right? He's going to get the, um, the, the source port that you sent it from wrong, and he's going to send the spoofed response to uh, a port on which you're not expecting uh, any kind of an answer, or he's going to send it uh, to a port on which you are expecting an answer, but he's going to guess the transaction ID wrong, one or the other. And unfortunately, I don't believe that uh, a bind name server really knows, notices either. Um, in the, the first case, in, in the case in which the spoofed response goes to a port on which you're not listening, the name server actually never even sees the response, so it has no opportunity to notice it. Uh, in the second case, I don't believe that current bind name servers are actually instrumented to tell you when they see a mismatched message ID. Um, the reason I, I believe that's the case, uh, or the, re the reason I think that that's so, is that uh, InfoBlocks actually changed the name server code to log that because we thought that that was pretty important in uh, the sort of post-Kaminsky era to uh, have your name server alert you when it was receiving these uh, mismatched message IDs. Absolutely. That, that's a fantastic idea because uh, why wouldn't you want that? I mean, it's that's what, uh, you know, if that's happening, you're under attack almost certainly. Yeah, and it's it's a really anomalous situation. I mean, if your name server is just cruising along, um, not under attack, doing its work, recursively resolving domain names, it should only very, very rarely uh, receive a response with a, with a message ID that it doesn't have in use. But um, for those people who aren't using Infoblox gear, I should point out that in the the first case, in the case in which um, you get responses on ports on which your name server is not listening, you will actually see it. There's a kernel variable, and I'm, I'm afraid I don't remember the name of it, but there is actually a kernel var variable that you can watch and that will increment each time that happens. Um, you know, and I wish, wish I, I knew off the top of my head what it was, but it's some kernel var variable that has to do with, you know, uh, UDP datagrams received on ports that uh, aren't listening or something like that. All right. So then uh, the second part of his question is the same scenario that he described, but if the victim name server is on an intranet that is forwarding the request to a name server on a DMZ network, would this attack really work since the victim name server is simply forwarding requests and not doing iteration, such as a name server on the public-facing DMZ? So once again, forwarding mm -hmm. comes up. Interesting. Interesting. So I guess in, in this case, I, I, look at, I look at the question and, and think, well, if I were a hacker, why wouldn't I just attack the forwarder on the DMZ? Yeah, and I'm trying to think, can you, how do you even attack that, uh, that name server behind the forwarder? Yeah, I mean, in the general case, I, I wouldn't think that you'd be able to get packets to it, right? I mean, it'd be exactly. purely internal and there would be a firewall that would probably pre, you know prevent you from from sending spoofed responses to it i would think right yeah well i suppose strictly speaking you don't have to have a forwarding setup in this configuration that is where you have name servers behind uh, a firewall and they forward to a system sort of straddling the border right uh, that i think happens to be the number one 
best use case for forwarding, but you could just use forwarding uh, to, to stack up name servers and have a shared cache. Right. In you which could, case, it might... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say you could be using your ISP's name server as a forwarder, or you could be using OpenDNS. Yeah. Right. In which case, that would be a, a, a possible sort of attack. Somebody could spoof OpenDNS's um, source IP address and try to try to hit you with the spoofed response. Yeah, they could. Uh, they'd, it'd be harder to figure out that you were even there, though. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, they would... <laughs> I mean, I guess they, they might see that you tried to query them at some point, for example. There might be an authoritative name server under this hacker's control, and he could see... Uh, well, no, but he wouldn't see that. He'd see, he'd see the query from OpenDNS. Yeah, it's it's really laundering the uh, mm -hmm. the queries. Yeah, but uh, it is possible. I mean, it's conceivable that he would um, spoof the source IP address of OpenDNS. But then again, I mean, he he'd still have to guess both the uh, the source port you were using, assuming of course that you're using a name server that employs source port randomization, and he'd also have to guess uh, the message ID that you were using. So there we go. Yeah. So it's really not you know it's not any easier or really any harder than than uh, trying to spoof a, a name server that is is more exposed to the, to the internet I would guess yep I would agree wow so four is that questions in four just over 20 questions. minutes man well we can just rest on our laurels now I won't have to record another podcast for several months <laughs> and and think of all the people who are used to our half-hour podcasts on their commute, and they're, they're still not to work yet, or they're not home. What are they going to do for the remaining 10 minutes? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we could recount some, you know, funny uh, anecdote that has, you know, <laughs> at least some, some arguable relationship to DNS. I don't know that I have one. I was going to say, I, I got nothing. You got nothing? Well, you know, it's the... Uh, 10th anniversary of, of the, uh, the Loma Prieta quake. Uh, that was yesterday, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, that's at, least, um, at least slightly related to DNS f for, for me because that was the, um, that was the event that uh, caused the break in the sprinkler main in Building 26, um, which was part of uh, HP Labs campus and uh, it flooded out the primary hp.com name server so that's that's sort of how my official role in dns story. started well i i guess i i would yeah, start so that so go ahead i was gonna say so what uh i was gonna say you should just sort of tell the whole story or maybe you have really told most of the story already yeah the, there's not much more to it than that i was actually sitting at the uh at, at game three of of the World Series, and of course there were there was a lot of um, a lot of coverage of that out out here in the Bay Area. Um, yeah, it was a candlestick and waiting for for Game Three to start, and of course the the, uh, the the quake started, and that game never happened. And actually, I I didn't get to see the makeup game, <laughs> so I've, I've technically never seen a World Series game. Um, but uh, one of the things that happened, um, which of course is very very minor compared to uh, compared to a, a lot of the, the really tragic things that happened during the earthquake, one of the, the very small things that happened was that the basement level computer room in building 26 at HP, which housed the primary hp.com name server, flooded because a sprinkler cracked. And uh, HP machines, as I 
as I like to point out, are, are you know, mighty reliable and work in a lot of adverse uh, situations, but, but not so well underwater. So uh, uh, another um, uh, HP Labs employee, David Northrup, and I worked for, gosh, I'm trying to remember how long, basically all night one night to uh, resurrect the primary HP.com name server. And uh, we set that up, and you'll remember, Matt, the old um, corporate network services uh, computer room on uh, level C of building 20. Yeah. What yeah. was that thing called? That big glass enclosed room? I, you know, I don't know. Was it the, was that the network control center or the yeah. NCC, the network control center? Does that sound right? That sounds right. But yeah, I guess it was the NCC. Yeah. So we, David and I resurrected that in the NCC and um, actually took the subnet that had been use, in use uh, at Building 26 and actually brought the whole subnet back up um, in, in Building 20. And uh, I guess HP Labs, up, up until that point, had been sort of wanting to get rid of uh, the responsibility for running the primary HP.com name server um, to no avail because, you know, corporate didn't want it. And, uh, of course, then it had already moved, and, and uh, HP Labs said, well, now it's yours to manage. And corporate said, no, 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 we don't have anybody to do that. And David said, well, Cricket could do it. So that's how I got the job. That's how I became— and the rest is history. Yeah, the, <laughs> the rest is, is history. That's true. Wait, so you said, didn't you say 10th anniversary? Uh, uh, it's uh, the 20th anniversary. Oh, no, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's, it's, it was in 89, of course, October 89. Yeah, so it is the 20th anniversary of the Loma Prieta quake. Yeah, so I've been doing this now in some sort of official capacity for, for 20 years. Wow. Well, I didn't have such a dramatic a start, but uh, that was at that time in 89, I was... Uh, I was still at Northwestern, but I was doing DNS stuff by then, probably for the campus network. So I, I figure I've got twenty years in this too, yeah. half my life. Yeah, it's amazing. Devoted to it? DNS. Yeah, and, and and to think that it's still you know DNS is still going strong. That people are still uh, interested in it, and uh, people you know there's there's still new developments, protocol work going on, <laughs> and we're still working on DNSSEC. <laughs> yeah. Some things never change. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable. Well, you want to take us out? I think we've reached a, res- a respectable length. I think we have with that little bit of reminiscing. We're, we're very close to the, uh, the 28 minute mark. So yeah, um, I will, I'll take us out. Um, uh, thank you all very much again for listening. We sh- sure appreciate your questions. Um, and it's, it's a real pleasure to run into people who, who listen to the podcast and uh, enjoy it or, or get some use out of it. Um, again, if you have questions, please feel free to submit them to our email address, which is mrdns, mrdns, at ask-mrdns.com. And we will be back with you <laughs> sooner or later with another podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye-bye.